Good morning, family. How are you today? I've, I'm trusting that you've had a wonderful week serving God and doing the things that we do as families. Uh, you know, we're in this series uh, called The Churches uh, of the Book of Revelation. Um, there are seven churches, and they teach us much about who we should be, but as much as how we should not be. And today we're looking at the church of Smyrna. I remember a number of years ago, this would be about 10 years ago, I was sitting in a local uh, Starbucks in Toronto, and uh, I, I was reading as I normally do uh, in, in the morning, and it was actually a little closer to uh, about 9 o'clock, and it was a little longer than I normally would be, and as I was sitting there reading, I looked out the window, and there was this huge gathering that was taking place. And they were all students. There was a high school across the street. And I thought, what's going on there? It's, it's pretty intense. And uh, all of a sudden, I recognized it was more than pretty intense. It was very intense. I actually thought what was happening was a fight. And you know how kids get together, and, and you're waiting for them to say, fight, fight, fight. But it wasn't that. It was a young street preacher declaring the gospel. And one guy with a puffed chest was in his face, tearing down the good news of Jesus Christ, saying it was a lie, telling him that he better leave or else he was going to punch him in the face. He was, this young man was going after this preacher. He did not like anything that this preacher had to say. And I knew that because I'd moved from my chair to go out and see what would happen and recognize that it was a street preacher. And I thought, wow, that takes a lot of guts, doesn't it? It takes more than guts. It takes an absolute confidence in what you're saying. This man was telling people that his life had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I went out to hear this and began to pray for him began to pray that that young man who was in his face would quiet down. And guess what? He did. He got tired of yelling at the preacher and went away, took some of his friends with them. And this young preacher just kept telling people about the love of Jesus, how Jesus had made a difference in his life. Well, with that, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. And let's look at this second church in the seven that Jesus writes these letters to. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, by the way, angel is to the pastor of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are, of, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for every book in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. Each of these books you brought to us through 40 different authors over uh, four different continents, over thousands of years. But each book says the same thing, that you are God and that you have sent, uh, you were going to and you have sent the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who took our place on the cross that we might, by faith in him and his work, have life everlasting. We pray for ourselves as the church called the Bridge Church here in Whitby, that we might be faithful no matter what culture is doing or saying around us, that we might be faithful as a church, a, a corporate church, but we might be faithful as the church individuals within it to, to your word, to your mission, and to spreading the love of Christ wherever we get the opportunity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, <clears throat> we're, we're in this wonderful, amazing book called Revelation, and we're studying the seven churches. And last week, do you remember, it was the church uh, in Ephesus. And Ephesus is uh, a church that was struggling. Uh, Ephesus was a church that had lost their first love. And that first love was Jesus. They were going through the motions of being uh, a, a church. They were doing one thing well, they were protecting the doctrine, the truths about who Jesus was from those who were wanting to twist it, and that was great. But in the midst of their trying to protect that, they had faded in their passion for Jesus. And passion is so important. Today is a day when passion is going to be spread across North America. You know what I'm talking about? Super Bowl. I'm not as passionate about Super Bowl compared to with the passion that I have for Jesus. I love Jesus. He transformed my life. Super Bowl will never transform our lives, but it's fun. It's fun. The only problem is my team is not in the Super Bowl today, so what do I do? What do I do? But you know, Ephesus had lost their passion. But when we come to this church, Smyrna, they had not lost their passion. They, they had come to a place where they had been passionate enough that the people around them were starting to persecute them with great passion. And you know, I love what Jesus said in that great sermon of his, the Sermon on the Mount in, Ephesians, in Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as I think about that young man, and as I think about each one of us who will stand for Jesus and say, no, Jesus is God who became man and died for us if we might trust him. And, and, and when we get persecuted for that position, guess what? We are so blessed by God. When it comes to the church at Smyrna, nothing is mentioned about their lost love. It's mentioned, what's mentioned is about their persecution, their, the state that they're in and about to be in in a greater way. It sort of reminds me of uh, 
Paul, pardon me, John and Peter, when it says in Acts 5, and when they had called in the apostles, they had been preaching in, in, at the temple, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. And listen to what they said. It doesn't say, oh man, I hate being this Christian because we get beaten up and we get tortured and all that. It says, no, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name is Jesus. Now, you may be here for the first time and you're looking to find out who Jesus is to you. Well, let me tell you, on behalf of this church family, Jesus is everything. He's given us, as Christians, purpose for living. And in that purpose, we stand for him and people will disagree. They will say, you are crazy. You are off track. And they will say much worse things than that. But I like what John and Peter felt. They felt that they were counted worthy to stand for Jesus to suffer dishonor. So as we read this letter to the church at Smyrna, a couple things come to mind. One is that uh, Jesus, who's written this letter to them, is saying, I know what you're going through. And I want to tell you one thing. Endure. You're going through some tough times. No doubt about it. I see it. But I want you to endure. Secondly, he says that a suffering church needs to see clearly the risen Christ, and look to the future. I've called this message a seeing beyond our suffering. It's difficult when you're in the midst of suffering, persecution. And by the way, we live in North America where persecution for our faith is not really that great right now. But let's think about the persecuted church around the world. There are places in this world where you will be killed if you say, I am a Christian. Your life will be sought, and people will take it if they have any chance. And that's not here. We're thankful for that. But what if? How would you deal with persecution? How are you dealing with any level of persecution where you live, work, and play? Billy Graham said it so well. Billy Graham was the great evangelist of the 20th century. He preached to, th- to millions of people, and he said, no Christian has the right to go around wringing his hands, wondering what we are to do in the face of persecution, confusion, wars, and rumors of wars. We are to comfort one another with the knowledge that Jesus Christ is coming back in triumph, glory, and majesty. Let that sink in. Billy, Billy said it so well. Jesus is coming back. The risen Christ will return. So, as we look at these four verses, four verses, let's take note of four important details found in this communication, this letter to Smyrna. The first is, notice, the distinguishing characteristics of the church at Smyrna. It says, Verse 8, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, and we discover this church is in quite a beautiful spot. Smyrna is just up the coastline uh, of uh, Asia Minor. Uh, today, uh, Smyrna would, is actually uh, the, the large town of Izmir in Turkey. It's, it's still around. 
And it is a beautiful, beautiful place. It was a wealthy city back then, second only to Ephesus, uh, a beautiful seaport city. Uh, Some of the historians say it was the most exquisite city the Greeks ever built. Just imagine living in a place like that, this beautiful, natural, protected harbor. Uh, It had great roads into the interior of the country. It was like a planned community that we do today. It was all planned. And, And the part of the plan was they put all the temples to the pagan gods up on the hills above the city. Even the one big amphitheater that was meant for uh, worshiping Caesar, because uh, Caesar was viewed as a god. And so they had this amazing amphitheater that could hold 10 to 20,000 people. And you were supposed to worship Caesar. Now today, think about this, having listened to what Ephesus went through, Ephesus is gone. It's ruins. But today, Smyrna, Izmir, Turkey, has got approximately 3 million people in it, and a third of them claim Christ as Savior. It's a grand city. I I, I just find that interesting. The place that had lost its love for Jesus, gone. The place that was persecuted for Jesus, thriving. Now, anybody reading these few verses addressed to Smyrna will will immediately recognize they're they're in a pressure cooker. Uh, It's tough. Life is difficult. And I think every word that was chosen in these very few, four verses, was chosen and intended to encourage these churches. And, And if you note, as we go through the seven churches, that out of the seven churches, uh, only two of them received commendation and encouragement without uh, a warning. This and, and Philadelphia were the only two churches that got this wonderful encouragement, this blessing. Secondly, uh, I don't want to rush past that description that Jesus gives himself. He says, the words of the first and the last who, who died and came to life. First and last who died and came to life. These are words of encouragement. These are words that remind us that Jesus, the one who lived and died, rose again. He's the eternal. He is the first and last, the alpha and the omega. He existed always, and he will exist always. And, and Jesus is the one who came back from the dead. He was resurrected. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we might as, all, as well all go home. Am I right? The resurrection is the pivotal point of the Christian faith. Without a resurrected Christ, our faith is dead. And we might as well go and sleep in on Sunday mornings. Don't do that. He is alive. That title holds huge significance. It reminds us that God always had a plan for each and every one of our lives. And that plan was for him to take our place on the cross. And I say it often, I'll say it again this morning. When Jesus hung on the cross, he had you specifically in mind. He knew your name. Like he knew the church at Smyrna and every soul in that church. He knew them by name. He knew every hair on their head. He died on that cross with you in his heart and mind. And if you've not given your heart to Christ, just think about that. He died for you. Will you trust him today? Will you trust 
the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of heaven and earth. Will you trust him today? By the way, Smyrna, uh, that word Smyrna, that name, comes from the, the, the spice, myrrh. You know that spice? Some people say myrrh, myrrh. That spice is that spice that those wise men brought to Jesus when he was just a babe. That spice is what um, people in that time, they were, their bodies were embalmed in myrrh, and uh, it, it helped the smell because they didn't have the same things that we have today to, uh, uh, to embalm. That spice was one that said, you, Smyrna, are a sweet fragrance in the midst of the trials that you're going through. As they, the people around them, will persecute you for being Christians, all that happens is you bring a beautiful waft of, of sweet aroma, the aroma of Christ, to that region. But as they uh, had that beautiful wafting smell of Christ, um, we know that Christ had risen from the dead, and, and, and he, the sweetest of all smells, brought with him life everlasting. He brought us, he brings us on the way. He's already traveled the path from death to life. Do you ever worry about dying? Let's be honest, yeah. We all have that flicker of, oh, what's that going to be like? We as Christians know that if we are in Christ, that we are absolutely certain of heaven. There is no question. Do you want to know certainty of heaven? Trust Christ. And why can we trust Christ? Because he's walked from death to life. He is the firstborn of those that are rising from the dead. And he says this to us, follow me. Have you ever been on a, a, a trip, maybe a hike, and you're going in a place you don't know, but you have somebody with you, and they've been there before? Isn't it great when they say, oh, just follow me? You know? When they're... Uh, trying to figure out this country, this North America. They had all these guides. And the guides took them uh, through the, t the terrain, and they took them to places they should go and places they shouldn't go. Wow. To be able to have someone who says, follow me, I know the way. Jesus has said, follow me. I have been dead, and I am alive. So, there's some characteristics of this very interesting church called Smyrna. Secondly, let's take, take note of a second uh, aspect. Notice the wonderful commendation for the church at Smyrna. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and, yet, and are not, but are a, a synagogue of Satan. There is such a level of comf confidence knowing that someone has been before and can take us uh, down the path that we should be going. But there's also a, a real comfort when you're going through stuff in your life and someone says, I know what you're going through. I understand it. I've experienced that as well. Maybe it's been ill health. Maybe it's been financial struggles. Maybe it's been, uh, you know, traveling to a new city, a new country, and somebody comes alongside and says, don't worry, I'll help you. I've been where you, you're at. There is something in 
being with somebody who says, I know where you're at. And Jesus says to this church, I know you. I know where you're at. He says a couple things, three things. I know your tribulation. It's real. It's not, it's not like somebody says, oh, you're a stupid Christian. These people, their lives were being taken because they claimed Christ as their Savior. Remember, uh, Caesar is God. And if you don't worship Caesar, your life is in real jeopardy. And they would not stand and say, Caesar is Lord. So Jesus says, I know your tribulation. He also says, I know your poverty. They had earthly poverty. Even though this was a tremendously wealthy area, these Christians were not in that same bracket. It's really talking about a poverty that is an abject poverty. Deep, in, it's totally overwhelmed by the fact they don't have much financially. They don't have much in the way of worldly gifts, goods. But he says to them, but you are rich. Wow, what a, that's a wonderful little addition there. I know you're poor. But let me give you a better perspective. This is what Jesus is trying to help here, give a better perspective. You are rich. Their spiritual condition stands in stark opposition to their practical position. He's saying, guys, yeah, you're poor in uh, earthly possessions, but in spiritual possessions, you are wealthy beyond measure. Uh, may we never forget that there is a richness in the, the spiritual aspect of life, in, in eternal things. The spiritual condition stands in stark opposition to their economic condition. And I love Oswald Chambers. He was a, a great old preacher in the last century. He said this, the marvelous thing about spiritual wealth is that when we take our part in that, everyone else is blessed. When we come to the place where we recognize that we are spiritually poor or spiritually rich, we get to pass that on. How do you do that? How do you pass your spiritual wealth on? Well, telling people that Jesus loves them and died for them, that's, that's, that's a rich position to be in. You pray for people, we're passing on the blessing, the spiritual wealth that we have, which is to pray for others. To help people get a better perspective of this world, passing that along, spiritual blessing to others. Okay, so earthly poverty, but spiritual wealth. Jesus reminded them that in the midst of this persecution, they were spiritually rich. And if you're spiritually rich, what do you do with your wealth? You want, you want to invest it, don't you? How do rich people get richer? They invest it. They don't put it in the earth and let it sit there as if it's going to grow like a tree. They, they don't just put it in banks. You realize rich people don't put their money in the banks to get the banks to make them more wealthy. They invest in things that they know will help them get wealthier. What are we investing in as Christians with our spiritual wealth? I want to remind you, moms and dads, your first place to invest is in your children, your grandchildren. And if you put children in Sunday school this morning, what an amazing investment you just made. 
And over the years, they're going to hear the story of the love of Jesus over and over again. They're going to find out that Jesus sacrificed his life for them. And one day, one day, we pray that that investment will blossom. And that child will say, I love Jesus, and I want him to be my Savior. And they prayed Christ to be a part of their life, to enter their heart. And maybe they, those kids start to pray for us. And the investment starts to add, add up. But there's investments in other ways, of course. Your friends, your families, those you live, work, and play with. All of those are investments. Well, who are you investing in? And Christians, what we need to do as Christmas, Christians is grasp, grasp the things that we lose by persecution or personal choice for Jesus that those things that we lose will be made up in heaven many, many times over. Faithfulness for Christ is rewarded by a great inheritance in heaven. I love the scriptures that remind me of the things that are coming. When this world is tough and the pressure is on, I'd read a scripture like 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable. Listen, our inheritance is in heaven. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Isn't that exciting? Nobody, no one, not Satan himself, who is trying to influence this world, trying to influence us to be distracted from the cause of Christ, he can't take the inheritance that is in Christ and in heaven. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Man, that's a, that's a, a bunch of stuff that we need to consider daily. That this life has certain joys, but they don't compare to the inheritance that is ours in heaven. And thirdly, they notice, I, I noticed that uh, Jesus says that he sees, he knows that these Christians in Smyrna were being slandered. They were being attacked, and they're being attacked by false Jews of the synagogue, a synagogue of Satan. Basically what he's saying is, Okay, they're Jewish by birth, but they're not Jewish by their faith. They rejected the Christ that came to save them. And Satan has influenced them. And they've banded together to be basically a, a community that's controlled by Satan. And those, that community is persecuting you. I see that. I know that. And they slandered them. They, they said things that were absolutely false about them. And if you, if you really think about it, uh, false religion has always been the most zealous opponent of the truth of the scriptures. False religion. False religion, cults. They want to twist the scriptures. Other religions that say, no, there are more ways to heaven other than Christ, when the scriptures say that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. 
Many false religions would say that's not true. You can get to heaven a number of different ways. Well, if we put our faith that God gave us this book, a miraculous collection of his love letters to us, and it tells us there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. What are we going to believe? What are we going to tell others? Jesus is the only way. And these persecutors were doing everything they could to tear down the church at Smyrna. So we've seen characteristics. We've seen these commendations. And now let's look at the third thing, the clear command to the church at Smyrna. Now he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I mean, as I read this, I I have to remind myself, I I can never forget that Satan is real, that he is the lead antagonist opposition of God and his plan, and his job, number one job, is to influence through the culture and people of this world us to step away from the truths of Scripture. But guess what? It says, we are not to fear Do you ever wonder why godly Christians, Christians who are seriously following Jesus, would be put to the test? That maybe they would suffer even unto death, like what we're talking about here in Smyrna? Why would God do that? And I think the answer is largely bound up in this topic of the sovereignty of God. God is always at work. And you may not see him, But he's always at work, sometimes in behind the scenes. You know that. You've experienced the sovereignty of God. And when it comes to being tested by God, we go, why God? And sometimes we know, but sometimes it's going to be, I'm not going to let you know until maybe glory. But I give you four reasons, four possible uh, reasons for suffering. One, suffering may be disciplined. Suffering may be disciplined. Think of the church at Corinth who was not acting in a way that was honoring to God. And it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 30-32, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So sometimes God will discipline. He disciplined a church. And sometimes he will discipline us as individuals. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You you know what it was like when you were a kid. Mom and dad disciplined you and they said, I'm only doing this because I love you. And we said, yeah, right. (laughs) But the reality is, the truth is, they love us. And if it was a healthy parental-child relationship, that discipline was intended to keep us from hurting ourselves, from going down a wrong path. And that's the same with our wonderful, loving Heavenly Father. His discipline is is purpose to grow us to maturity, to keep us from walking that narrow path which would bring glory to Him 
and spiritual health to us. But suffering may also be, secondly, preventative. Remember, Paul often talked about the thorn in his flesh. And he he didn't like that thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. Some think it was his sight was really poor. Some knew that his health was always bad. But this is what he says. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. I think Paul understood. He was given so much more than the average believer in the church for the sake of the church that he wanted to be sure, uh, God wanted to be sure that he kept his ego in check. He said, to keep me from being conceited because of the great revelations. And that was preventative. But there's also suffering that comes maybe educational. Suffering is often used to teach the child of a God um, what could otherwise remain unlearned. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Let me stop. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that, Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that uh, suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces stuff. I think of all the Christians that suffered in all the terrible situations throughout history how many would stand and they'd say are you a christian do you will you renounce your faith and the suffering brought death but what did death bring freedom suffering brings us to the place where we say am i really a christian would i claim christ even in the the position of being threatened my life being threatened Suffering builds faith. If one is truly born again, one has truly put their faith in Christ, they will stand and they will say, I stand for Christ no matter what you will do to me. Even Jesus. It says in Hebrews 5.8, Jesus, our example, said, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So, suffering simply says we get to learn a greater level of obedience to the cause of Christ. Okay. Fourthly, suffering brings a more powerful testimony. When the world sees how much we will suffer for Christ, even at the expense of our life, when that happens, it is a powerful testimony. And and this kind of a conversation that we're having this morning could be challenging for us to see the relevancy because as I said, we live in a world here in Canada where this isn't the case. But right now, at many other places around the world, Christians' lives are hanging in the balance because they're standing for Christ. And if anything, this message is good for us to do, for us today, is to remind us to pray for the persecuted church around the world. Will you you do that this week, at least this week? Will you each day hold up the persecuted church in the Middle East, in Russia, 
in some of these places where lives are lost for the sake of Christ, those believers, those churches, they, they desperately need our prayer. I love what John Walver, John Walver was a wonderful pre- professor of theology out of a school called Dallas Theological Seminary down in uh, Dallas, Texas. He wrote, the experience of the church at Smyrna, therefore, though undesired by them, was undoubtedly designed by an infinitely wise and loving God for their good as well as for the better testimony of the gospel. Must be hard to pen that when you haven't experienced it, but he's right. It was for their good and for the greater power of the testimony for the gospel. The inside of many cells, many prisons have been home to a lot of Christians put in there for their faith. And and someone says, I don't know who, who wrote this, but the cells of Jerusalem and Caesarea and Philippi and Rome have been sanctified by prayers and praises and had their darkness illumined by Christ's presence because Christians were in those cells. Think of the Philippian jailer. Hear these great apostles in there praising God, singing songs, and the Philippian jailer comes to Christ because those men went to prison for Christ. What would we be willing to do for Christ? And Now, we, we see here a little bit of a time element. Look at verse 10, the last part of verse 10. It says, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Let me just tell you this. 10 days is a symbolic number that reminds us it's a short time. In the Old Testament, we see examples where 10 days was used, like an Abraham's servant wanted to carry off Rebecca, her brother and mother, and they requested 10 days. That was just to say a short time. Daniel and his friends, uh, they were told that they had to eat the king's food. And they said, give us 10 days of eating what we would normally eat, and we'll show you that that will still keep us healthy and ready to be in front of the king. And it was right. They were healthy and could be in the king's presence. What Jesus is seeming to indicate to them here is that their suffering, really in the big picture, was going to be for a short time. There were certain days that were marked out for suffering, and those days are calculated by God. For every persecuted saint, God knows those days. And no matter what tribulation we might pass through, um, before God, he knows exactly how long it will be. And he's saying, just be faithful. I will be with you each step of the way. What's interesting about this is the angel, the pastor that this letter was delivered to for the church to receive was named Polycarp. How many of you love history? I love history. Love history. Polycarp was... uh, uh, he, he lived a long life, but he was the pastor at this time. And eventually, the people of the city of Smyrna and the council brought Polycarp uh, to a, a, a trial. And they said, Polycarp, renounce your faith. Polycarp knew what he was doing because if he didn't renounce his faith, they loved to throw Christians into an arena with wild animals to be torn apart. 
Kathy and I were in Israel and we saw a place like that where they would throw Christians in and the lions would just devour those bodies. The charge before them was atheism. Charge before Polycarp was atheism. And they were saying, renounce your non-faith in Caesar, the Lord. If you will just say, Caesar is Lord, you can walk out of here alive. This is what Polycarp said. This is written down. This is his exact words. Isn't it interesting? We, we can know that this man in the first century, what he exactly said. He said, for 86 years, I have been Jesus' servant. And he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And that Roman ruler said, I'll destroy you by fire if you don't recant. He asked him three times. And Polycarp answered, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fires of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring on what you will. That's faith. That's faith. A man says, you can't do anything to me. It'll be just a short time, and I'll be gone. But there's an eternity of punishment for those who will not trust Christ. Polycarp, one more time, confessed he was a Christian. And here's his final prayer recorded. I thank you that you, Christ, have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may be a part of the number of martyrs to die for Christ. Thank you, Polycarp, for your faithful testimony right until the end. And I am sure that there is not one of us in here who would like to experience what Polycarp experienced. But should the day come, I'm encouraged by Polycarp. For whatever would be before me, that I would say, I've lived all these years for Christ. I will not change my heart, not change my mind. I know my Savior lives. And he lives forevermore. And so Jesus exhorts Smyrna, the church there, And he exhorts the bridge here today. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Psalms has a lot of, uh, the book of Psalms, wonderful encouragement. We we heard one from Pastor Jonathan as he he read this morning. Here's another Psalm, 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? If we trust Christ, that psalmist has the right perspective. What can flesh do to me? He understood how clearly, just how little the enemy could do. I want to give you a sort of linear thought on this. Um, There is fear. I don't think it's wrong to say that I would be afraid of being thrown to animals or to be put under the fire. There's that 
natural fear. That's, that's understandable. But the next step in that, that line is there is heavenly faith. When our faith in Christ is so real, it outweighs the fear of what man can do. Heavenly faith. Do you have that heavenly faith? And when we have heavenly faith, the next step, there is no fear. There's peace. It's peace knowing that God has me firmly in the grip of grace. Trusting God's word, not Satan's lies. God has the last word. His last word is you will receive the crown of life. Crown is that word, Stephanos. It's that word that's talking about a laurel that they put around. And one day we will receive the crown of life, the crowns of service. And guess what we're going to do with the crowns that we receive? We're going to throw them at the feet of Jesus. Because we're not worthy. We're not worthy. And we're going to bow. We're going to say, thank you, Lord, for taking me through the fires of this world. Thank you, Lord, for saving me that I might have life everlasting with you. Again, let me close by saying, listen to some of these great verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what trials will do. They will perfect us in our faith. Blessed is a man, James 1.12 says, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I want to leave one last observation. Notice God's commitment to the church at Smyrna. Verse, the last part of verse 10 and verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. A wonderful promise. A commitment from God. Only those who are in Christ will be the ones who will truly listen to this. They will hear it and they go, I believe what God is saying. The one who conquers. That word conquers is the word in Greek, nikeo, the word that that big company took and used it as their, their, their masthead, Nike. It means to conquer, to have victory. And in Christ, we have victory. As I said, we know what's coming. I, I read the, the end of the book. Revelation, it says Jesus wins. He conquers. The glories of life eternal stand in sharp contrast to the short trials of martyrdom and will erase the dark shadow of persecution. And no, we might not in this place where we live experience martyrdom, but we will begin more and more. Maybe you're experiencing now more persecution for those of us who stand and say, I am a Christian. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But God will say, I will bless you. I will strengthen you. I will give you what you need to live in this life, live in this world that you live in. And that first death versus second death, first death is our physical bodies. The second death is the fact that when we die, it says that Christians, those who are in Christ, there will be absence from this body, but they will be immediately in the presence of the Lord. But for those who are not in Christ, it is an eternal death, an eternal separation from the Lord. Let's read this. 
Revelation chapter 20. Go right to the end of the book. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne. This is the judgment seat of Christ, where those who do not know Jesus one day will be before. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found in for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. God knows every aspect of our life. He can see every detail of our lives according to what they had done, it says. And when the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And listen, your eternity depends on how you respond. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a hell. There is a place of absolute forever separation from the loving presence of God. Yes, hell, lake of fire, separation from, from God. The only way that will not happen in your life is if you have your name written in the book of life. How does that happen? As I started, it begins when you put your faith and trust in the risen Lord who died for you, gave himself for you. Will you do that? Will you trust Jesus today? And no matter what persecution comes along, what happens? You're in the grip of the love of God. You're a child of his. Your name is written in the book of life.